I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Tonight sees the 50th anniversary of the deaths of at least three world-famous men. One was, of course, John F. Kennedy, another was Aldous Huxley, but the man who concerns us on the God slot tonight is the poet, essayist, literary critic, academic and novelist C.S. Lewis. A self-described atheist at the age of 15, Lewis eventually embraced Christianity, and his writings today are almost compulsory reading for those who seek to understand the Christian faith. Among his works of fiction, the best known is the series of seven novels for children known as the Chronicles of Narnia. And in this extract from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the children meet the central character, the figure of Aslan the Lion. Aslan stood in the centre of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves round him in the shape of a half-moon, There were tree women there and well women, dryads and naiads as they used to be called in our world, who had stringed instruments. It was they who had made the music. There were four great centaurs. The horse part of them was like huge English farm horses, and the man part was like stern but beautiful giants. There was also a unicorn and a bull with the head of a man and a pelican and an eagle and a great dog. And next to Aslan stood two leopards, of whom one carried his crown, and the other his standard. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. To join us in our commemoration of C.S. Lewis, we're joined from London by his stepson, Douglas Gresham, and by the rector of Christ Church in Bray, the Reverend Baden Stanley, and with them we'll be discussing the Christian symbolism in Lewis's work. But before we do, let's not forget that the Narnia novels were written for children, and to discuss them in that light, we're joined in studio by 12-year-old Nora Fay. Nora, you're very welcome to The Godslot. Thank you. How old were you when you first read The Chronicles of Narnia? I was around eight or nine, and I was introduced them by my grandmother, who gave them on my, a book on my first birthday. And it had different extracts of different books, and it gave introductions to all the different books. And from then on, I became very interested in Narnia, and I wanted to read more. And what did you think of the stories? Did you realise that they were deep, that there was an extra dimension to them at that stage, or were you just reading them as fairy tales? At that stage, I just enjoyed them, rather than actually thinking about what they meant or anything. And they just seemed so magical and made you think you could do anything with the world. And you just wanted to be one of those children in Narnia. Who was your favourite character? I think Lucy is my favourite character because she was the one that discovered Narnia. And I always wanted to be Lucy because she made me think I could do anything and anything was possible if I was Lucy. And did you really believe that those children were going to Narnia at the time? At the time I did, but when I after reading it... I wasn't so sure, and I went to my wardrobe a few times with my friends trying to go in, but it never worked. 
Did you see the films? Oh, I did, and I really liked them. They made you believe in Narnia much more because you could actually see it rather than just trying to picture it. It didn't seem quite surreal. Well, Nora, stay with us and, and feel free to jump in any time you've got anything to say. Baden, you tried to recreate Narnia in Bray. Tell yes. us about that. Uh, well, it began about six years ago, actually, when we were trying to tidy up a big porch. And somebody says, this is impossible. It's like an old wardrobe. And this little idea began. And uh, literally over the next two years, we turned that porch into the wardrobe. And you walked through that wardrobe into the back of the large uh, church that was covered in snow. Uh, white Christmas trees, uh, Mr. Tumnus's house, the Beaver's Dam, all the way around the church. Uh, we created the land of Narnia, I suppose, in a way to remain true to the story, but above all, to capture a sense of wonder and to try and explain that the story of Easter is so clearly encapsulated, particularly in the land, the witch and the wardrobe. So we decided about four years later we'd go again. And just this spring, uh, during the season of Lent, we went for the theme of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And uh, we had literally the ship, the waterfall, the um, dragon, the large lion. And uh, we had an amazing experience, really, of telling not just the story of Lent as giving up something, but uh, actually that sense of Lent being dealing with temptation, identifying it and coping with it. Douglas very kindly came and opened that festival for us this year as well. Uh, Douglas, I was just coming to that. You came for the opening of that exhibition. Yes, I did indeed, and had a great time. It was it was fun. I was very impressed with the dragon, particularly. <laughs> yes. I liked it. <laughs> now, how old were you, Douglas, when you first read the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, I was about eight when I first read them for myself. They'd been, I mean, the, the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, those that had been published were read to me before by my mother. Now, when you were reading them, did you, did you realise the impact, if you like, of what you were reading and, uh, you know, by whom they were and the impact of that? Well, I certainly understood the impact of what I was reading. Well, not so much the impact as the, what it really meant, I understood, because my mother would have explained it to me had I not, but I had already, I knew the story of Jesus and so forth, and the parallels are pretty, pretty easy to, interesting, they're pretty easy to pick up when you're a child. It gets much more difficult as people get older, apparently. Children almost always get it straight away, and adults rarely do. Nora, would you have seen that when you were reading them? I think I would. I, I would have noticed it more after reading it. It hit me, but not as much as after reading I thought about it more, and I recognised the story behind it and all the meaning in it. OK. Now, Douglas, you worked on the films. Yes, indeed. There are parts of filmmaking which are boring, like doing all the deals and the lawyer stuff and all that, which I don't really enjoy very much. But the actual being on the set and working with the crews and so forth is, is a fabulous experience. I enjoyed it enormously. And more coming down the line, I gather. Yeah, we're just starting work on the fourth one right now, The Silver Chair. And I'm looking forward very much to getting, uh, getting my teeth into it. Uh, it's a long process, a slow process, I'm sure you know. But I'm really looking forward to shooting it. OK. Well, next we turn to Lewis's timeless classic on Hell's latest novelties and Heaven's unanswerable answer, The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape is an experienced devil. His nephew, Wormwood, is just at the start of his demonic career and has been assigned to secure the damnation of a young man who has just become a Christian. Screwtape shares his vast infernal experience with young Wormwood and advises him through a series of letters. My dear Wormwood, even under slubgob, you must have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation, and since for us spirits this whole subject is one of considerable tedium, though necessary as part of our training, I will pass it over, but on the larger issues involved, I think you have a good deal to learn. The enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma, either complete abstinence 
or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, for the last few centuries, we have been closing up as a way of escape. We have done this through the poets and novelists, by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage, that marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and specially that one self is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. Bedna, times here, the whole moral universe yes. is turned upside down to help Lewis make his point. What do you think of these letters? It's, it's incredible. Um, I know that uh, Jack himself was really slightly disturbed at his own ability to, to grasp these <laughs> concepts so easily and I, 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 you can see why. I mean, uh, this sense of temptation, this sense of evil and it, the cleverness of it is that you're listening to it or you're reading it and you suddenly think, gosh, that's actually so true. Douglas, what's your take on the screw tape letters? I think it's probably one of the most revealing things ever written about the devil. It gives us a very good insight into how he works within each one of us. And most of us can find ourselves in the pages of that book if we look carefully enough and are honest enough to do so. But I have to tell you that when they were released first in The Guardian, the Anglican Church newspaper at the time, as a series of letters, at least one uh, clergyman wrote in and, and cancelled his subscription on the grounds that he didn't understand how the paper could print this stuff because some of it was positively diabolical. Mm. <laughs> it's all completely missed the point. And I think there are probably some people still who, who might miss the point a little bit. But uh, as Baden points out, Jack was incredibly clever at uh, taking the opposite side. He said afterwards that nothing was easier to write than this book, but nothing left him feeling more drained and, and kind of just gritty and dirty after he'd, he'd done a session of writing on it. Do you think he really believed in, in an entity known as the devil or was Satan a symbolic figure? I think if you're Christian, you have to believe in the devil because Jesus makes it quite plain in the scriptures that he exists and he is an, an enemy that we have to fight. And it strikes us that in a lot of his thinking, he's not very far away from full-blown Roman Catholic theology. And I think Tolkien was very disappointed, in fact, that he didn't <laughs> become a Catholic. Yes, I think I think Tolkien was very disappointed. And uh, But Jack had uh, one, one or several problems with the Roman Catholic Church. And part of it, of course, was his heredity to start with. But he never did become a Catholic, and uh, though he does certainly... I mean, if you get... Jack always said that if you talk to the real top men in any church, you usually find that they have much the same beliefs. It's only when you filter down through the ranks that the thing gets diluted and, and, and the traditions and the other things come into place. But um, Jack was very careful to avoid, in all of his works, any... Uh, denominational uh, slants at all. Now, apart from the points that they make about morality, they're also a hell of a good read, aren't they? 
Absolutely. He was a master of the English language, and he wrote in ways which even the simplest of us can understand. And also, his writing is beautiful to read. Baden, I see you nodding your head through yeah, all of that. Yeah, <laughs> I think very much so. And you see, I think uh, there's a lovely line even within Screwtape uh, itself where uh, he speaks of how it is so much easier when humans don't believe we exist or when if they do believe we exist that they caricaturize us with the red uh, horns <laughs> and the tail and the red suit and all that. And it's so much easier Absolutely. then. Uh, but um, it can be hard for people to to get a concept of a person of the devil. Most of us probably um, can cope with the fact that there is evil. But it's very clear in what Jesus himself spoke of, and he of all people would have known uh, because of uh, the, the struggles uh, that, uh, that, that, that he faced both in the wilderness uh, but also at, at the very end. Uh, and in our um, exhibition there earlier, mm. we got an artist, a local artist, to talk, to draw pictures of the three temptations, but not to finish there, but with the with the crucifixion as well. And so the devil is, is in each of the three temptations and also in Catholic um, uh, mythology that the devil is there at the end too. But, uh, but so we depicted that within the uh, last picture of the crucifixion, but from a very different angle, looking over the shoulder of Jesus, looking down, the devil is there, probably begin to realise he's made a mistake uh, because <laughs> the ground is opening up under Jesus. It's an artistic depiction, but it's opening up and hell is opening up and, and those who are captured there are being released. Nora, have you got to the screw tape letters yet? I've read bits of it and I, I enjoyed it because it was just clever, the way he made you think about yourself. And you, you'd feel bad about yourself in certain ways or good and happy, but it, it made you kind of feel better about yourself and think about how you behaved and acted. There is a danger attached to all of this too, as Jack pointed out in another of his works. He said there are two equal and opposite errors that humanity makes about the devil. One is to cease believing in him completely, and the other is to believe in him, but not only believe in him, but take a morbid and, and overzealous interest in him and that way get lost also. Mm -hmm. So one has to be a little careful. OK, well, now we need to move on because time is catching up with us. Uh, during the Second World War, C.S. Lewis gave a series of lectures on the BBC reminding listeners of the truly important things in life and showing the way to joy and contentment. These talks were gathered together and issued in book form under the title Mere Christianity. And in this excerpt, Lewis discusses the greatest sin. I now come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride, or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the centre of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the centre. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. 
Now, another great writer, Anthony Burgess, said of mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis is the ideal persuader for the half-convinced, for the good man who would like to be a Christian but finds his intellect getting in the way. Would you have any comments on that, Baden? Yes, uh, I wonder how he knew about me when so all that time. Uh, it is incredible. I mean, all it's an incredible insight that... We tend to focus on the physical pleasures and the temptations in around there and associate sin in those ways, whereas what C.S. Lewis has so rightly done is focus on the, the, the root of it all, which is pride. And it is so uh, central to power, to struggle, to all the things that we do. And very often the times we don't even think we're doing it, other times we're very proud about that fact, and it's so subtle. Uh, so I just love the fact that he doesn't just lay out the centrality of pride as sin, but also, if you like, the antidote, the virtue of humility uh, and true humility um, comes when people don't even realise their gifts or their strengths and I see this daily in parish ministry when you're talking to people and you're just amazed by them and you're, you're moved by them in ways and they have no sense of that in themselves which makes it all the more powerful mm-hmm. so I think that humility balance is very important. Douglas he is the epitome of that definition of theology as faith seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but getting onto the subject of pride again, just for a moment. When I was about the age Nora is now, I once, thinking I was being clever, said to Jack, "You know, Jack, I think my worst sin would be pride." And Jack said, with a twinkle in his eye, "Yes, I think I'd agree with you." <laughs> <laughs> and he was absolutely right. Of course, uh, it is something we have to fight all the time. But you know, Jack does make, as I said, these these very complex issues very, very easy to understand, simple to address. Much more difficult, of course, to fight, but um, that's not his, his, his thing wasn't to teach us exactly how to fight, but the fact that we had to, I think, more than how to. Though in some cases he does that too in the Narnian Chronicles, for example. Now, we're conscious of the fact that he was writing in the middle of World War II, a lot of this, mm-hmm. but is it still relevant today, you think? I think it's more relevant today than it ever has been, and I think it will go on being relevant as long as mankind exists in its present form or any other, because we are going to get more and more prideful, and we can see that happening in our societies around us all the time at the moment. Uh, People are starting to live their lives based on pride and conceit. And this is something which is not new, but it's something that's becoming more prevalent. So I think certainly mere Christianity and all it teaches, um, all the different ways it approaches understanding Christianity, um, will become far more important to us. We need them far more than we ever have before, probably. And I don't think this book will ever disappear. I think as long as people are reading books, no matter whether it be online or however else, paper books or Kindle or whatever, uh, it will go on being being read and, and being enjoyed and being understood and will do great good in the world. It's converted a lot of people to an understanding of Christianity. Baden. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Webster's Dictionary this week um, decided that the word selfie mm. uh, was the the new word, if you like, and has been used the most in recent years. And uh, when you put self at the very centre, uh, it, it, in so many ways it, it makes sense because what feels right for me, what's good for me, relativism, all of that uh, have become more and more important. But when you put self at centre, it means something else is pushed out. Mm. Uh, you know, and um, there, there's a there's a, there's a phrase uh, that ego stands for edge God out, and that can be just so true. I mean, as as a person of pride, as a person who struggles with pride, I would have to be honest and say, almost daily you have to remind yourself that Jesus just lived humility as the King of Kings, as the one who was due every honor and majesty and power and dominion and all of those sort of things, and he just surrendered all of that. It's just mm. awesome, really. How can you look down on someone who towers above you on a cross? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Well, finally tonight, Douglas, we'd like to spend a few minutes talking to you. Now, I know you've had a very busy day today on the anniversary and thank you for taking the time to be with us. I, I suppose most of what we know about your early years comes from the play by William Nicholson, Shadowlands. Your mother was Joy Davidman Gresham and she came to England with you and your brother David. Um, how was that for you to move from America to England in the 1950s? It was 1953 and it was, it was a, well, to start with, it was an amazing adventure for an eight-year-old boy. Um, I mean, I was steeped in the, in the Narnian Chronicles that existed at that stage that had been pub- published. And also, of course, the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and I had this wonderful fantasy image of what England would be. Pulling into the docks in Liverpool on a cold November day probably <laughs> didn't quite fit the picture. Um, I found England disappointing at first. But then slowly I realised that all of the great sort of literary figures in, in my imagination, in the books I'd read and so forth, actually were still there in a strange sense. Uh, even to this day, you cannot drive past the, uh, the the great ring of stones around Avebury without a slight chill up the back of your spine. There is a great deal of mythology still there and so on. But it was a wonderful adventure to start with. And uh, I, I did grow to like England and English people very, very much indeed. And living then with with, uh, C.S. Lewis and indeed his brother after the pair were married, the two minds coming together because there's a quote somewhere that that their brains matched each other almost. And they also followed a similar path of conversion, if you like. Your mother, I understand, came from a Jewish background. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And Jewish atheist parents brought her up to believe in nothing, as it were. But in the 1930s, 20s, I suppose, when she was growing up, there were really sort of two alternatives you could you could uh, pick up. And you either became a fascist and conquered the world or you became a communist and saved it. And she rather liked the communist idea instead of the fascist one and went that way. It took her a while, but not very long, to realize the empty hollowness of that uh, that philosophy and left it, and thanks to uh, a man called Chad Walsh who sent her a copy of Mere Christianity, she began to read this strange English author, C.S. Lewis. And really that uh, introduction to Christianity through that book was the start of everything, I guess, in that sense. Now, you said earlier that she would have explained to you the, some of the concepts in the Chronicles of Narnia mm-hmm. so that by the time you met him, you already knew a bit about him. Indeed I did, but I knew just enough to get me really excited that I was going to meet this man who was on speaking terms with High King Peter of Narnia himself (laughs) and the great Lion Aslan. And of course I expected him to be wearing silver armour and carrying a sword. (laughs) He was a a disappointment at first sight. I mean, he was a stooped, balding, professorial-looking gentleman with the most shabby clothes I'd ever seen a human being wearing and long, nicotine-stained teeth and fingers. So he didn't quite fit the heroic mould I'd cast in my imagination. But his enormous personality and his great kindness and, and his sense of fun, which most people don't realise about Jack, he was a, a great man full of fun and full of laughter and full of joy, uh, always telling jokes and amusing people. That sort of part of his personality soon eradicated any visual deficiencies there might have been about him. In fact, I lost an illusion and gained a very good friend very quickly and subsequently a wonderful stepfather. Well, and, and then you stayed living with him after your mother died from bone cancer. Well, yes, it was a difficult time for both of us. Um, Well, for Jack, I mean, it was horrendous. What people don't seem to realise today is that all marriages end badly, and the greater the love between the partners, the the worse will be their ending when one of them dies and goes on ahead. Um, When a marriage comes to an end for whatever reason, it's it's, it's a painful process. For Jack, he was in this stage of, of the flowering of his love, He'd only been, they'd only been together a few years, and suddenly she was gone, and of course it knocked him completely sideways. Um, I was a rather more resilient character, I think, being a little boy and just losing my mother, but I knew it was going to happen. We both knew she was going to die fairly soon. But it was still a shock. And so Jack um, only had me to lean on, in a sense, and, and I had him to lean on, so I got far better part of the bargain. 
but it was tough. It was a hard time. But we grew very close in in those first uh, well, the, 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 the four uh, three years was it? yeah three years he li- he lived on afterwards. We both grew very close. But that's it. You lost him not that long afterwards. It was only three years. It was only three years. Yeah, and, and and I'll tell you this much: I knew my mother was going to die. I was prepared for that to happen, but I didn't think Jack was ill enough to die when he did. And it was a terrible shock. No one had told me that he was he was um, approaching death, though they must have known. And so if, if you're ever in that situation, tell the kids the truth, for heaven's sake. <laughs> the, the shock is far worse than the approaching, um, approaching slow approach of death, you know. I was at school in a place called Applegarth in Surrey, and um, during the afternoon we heard that, uh, that Kennedy had been assassinated. And at first we didn't believe it, but as the reality sunk in, of course, everybody started to cluster around the television and, and started... But there was quite a lot of... Grief, in a sense, too, because he was regarded as the great hope for mankind at that time. And I was in a, an outdoor um, anteroom sort of building away from the school, and I heard the footsteps, unusual at that school, of a sort of high-heeled female running down the, the path. She just said, Are you, could, I, could you come with me, please? Just leave your books and we'll take care of them. So I did, and she took me to the, the headmaster's wife who greeted me on the, on the pathway and uh, told me that Jack had died, and it was a heck of a shock. But he was a man who went willingly to meet his maker and he was happy to go. Well, that's a nice way to end it. Douglas, thank you so much for joining us this evening in dealing with a phenomenon as all-embracing as C.S. Lewis in a short programme like this. We were never going to be able to do more than scratch the surface. Thanks also to the Reverend Baden Stanley and to Nora Fay for sharing their insights into C.S. Lewis. And thank you all for listening. Until next week, Gugudi Jiyashiv.